message will be given us today by Mr. Matt Steele. It's entitled, Eschatology. Good afternoon. I'd like to uh, just thank uh, the two young men that have been leading our praise and our worship service uh, this afternoon. It's, it's really good. Um, Benjamin probably feels like he doesn't have any choice, but it's certainly a blessing to us that uh, he can step in and play the piano. Um, and uh, we're still missing you, Art. Uh, if you're tuned in online, we certainly miss his involvement. Festival of Joy. You know, there's um, there's an interesting thing that I've been learning about. Uh, I think I've mentioned before. I've been taking uh, the pastoral counseling classes, trying to um, uh, help myself in that process, and then hopefully help others uh, by learning some new tools and some some very specific skill sets for counseling. And it's really interesting. They have this concept, and I, some of you may have come across this when you did a seminar here um, a while back. Uh, it's called Return to Joy Happening. Have you ever heard of that? Um, sounds pretty good, right? You're returning to joy. Who doesn't want to return to joy? We like the idea of joy. It's, can I get an agreement on that? Yeah, we like joy. We, we want joy. We take joy all the time. Okay. Well, so this, uh, this idea of a return to joy mechanism is a tool by which we can use something in our life that gives us joy. That we can return to that place of joy when we are not in a place of joy. Right? Because there's plenty of things, plenty of things in life that are either mundane, they are painful, they're difficult, they're challenging, and we may find ourselves in a place where if we're not careful, we end up in a depressed state. And all the negative consequences. So returning to joy is really a critical thing. One of the return to joy mechanisms for me is what we've just done. In fact, for most people, music is a return to joy. Whether that's you know, listening to orchestral music or country, if you really have to listen to country. I'm channeling that right now. It's you like rock and roll, I know some of you used to like some really heavy metal music, maybe that's still your return to joy mechanism. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's some sort of artwork, a craft, or something that you do takes your mind off the weight of the world and returns you to the place of joy. And so this idea of a return to joy mechanism is a very simple thing that we can practice that gives us a tool, part of a skill set, if you will, to bring ourselves into a more joyful situation and a joyful uh, dynamic with ourselves. 
ourselves, with others, with God, and with the world. And so it's, it may seem a little strange, but I'm going to talk about the Feast of Trumpets, but as it relates to joy. Because we often hear about the prophetic elements of trumpets. We often hear about the, uh, the warfare that is associated with trumpets and the warning and the sirens and the claxons that warn of danger and so on. But there's actually a whole different side of trumpets that, oddly enough, we skip. And it really isn't that strange, is it, or that odd, because we tend to be focused on the negative. We do, as, as people, focus on the negative and skip the joy. Trumpets overall, though, is a really interesting holy day. Anybody willing to admit that they understand trumpets less than the other holy day? It's a strange holy day. You know, let's, let's just go down the list here. So, other holy days that we have. Passover, unleavened bread. I mean, it's just rich with meaning, right? There's so many uh, elements and attributes of Passover that, that we have come to understand Christ our Passover. We've come to understand Jesus is that unleavened bread that came down from heaven, that manna from heaven, the real manna from heaven. And we've come to understand that if we're covered by that Passover lamb, and if we are imbibing and taking on the nature of Jesus Christ, then that is eating that manna from heaven, right? His very nature. Being filled with His character, His fullness. And whatever we consume, that we are, right? Whatever we eat, it goes into our bodies, it goes into the structure of ourselves, and that's who we become. So spiritually we consume Christ Jesus, the unleavened bread, and our Passover lamb. And then, of course, we've got Pentecost. Pentecost is well understood. It's, it's the birth of the church, as we, we talk about it in a, in a Christian setting. It's also where Israel was given the law and engaged in the covenant, the first covenant with God, replacing their life of sin in Egypt and giving them structure and order and, and baked within that was a, a sacrificial system that again reinforced God's salvation. But for us, as Christians, we look at it as, as Pentecost, as the birth of the church. We look at that to say we have no longer following the old covenant. Everybody understands we're not following the Old Covenant, right? We're not following the Old Covenant that says, if you do this, you'll get goodies. You'll get these blessings. That was the Old Covenant. It's been replaced. Because that covenant, right, is never going to work. Because what do we do as human beings? As soon as we get the goodies, we forget the God that gave just so bad about that. And Israel was not unique about that. And so in the Christian setting, we understand that we've engaged now in not a practice.
practice of obedience for blessing, but a practice of obedience out of love and out of the relationship that we are building with Christ Jesus and God the Father. Incorporated and sealed that new covenant by the Holy Spirit. Sealed within us is the Holy Spirit of God. And the new covenant is a covenant of suffering. It is a covenant of suffering, of difficulty, of challenge, of making us change from the inside out into something that we haven't yet done. And that is going to hurt. And so, as I said before, we've moved from this old covenant of obedience in order to obtain blessings, we are now in a covenant of love and obedience and love. As Jesus said in John 14, verses 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells in you, and will be in you. I will not leave you open. I will come to you. So we have Pentecost. We have this new covenant. You know, and, and, and in many ways, this, this Christian covenant, this new covenant, is it's the hardest life we could choose. It is the most difficult life that we could do. But it comes with the greatest reward ever. And you may think, well, yes, eternal life. No. The greatest reward is living in an intimate relationship with God. That is our reward. That brings about that eternal life forever. Then we have atonement. The day that we all love to think and talk about things. Right? And that's coming up. Everybody ready? No? No? I'm, I'm seeing some heads saying no. That's honest. It's okay. But atonement, again, is that rich meaning, right, of, of the symbolism of what God is really doing in us, in the world, that he, that Christ Jesus is that high priest that goes into the holiest of holies inside of us, that tabernacle that we are, goes into our holiest, most intimate locations and starts messing with the starts requiring change, starts to move things around and cover us with his covering blood, his own Holy Day season, and we're looking forward to that. We come to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
again, it's rich in meaning, and it's pretty clear to understand. It's looking forward to the future. It's looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. looking forward to God dwelling with us. It's looking forward to that kingdom of God on earth. Anybody want the kingdom of God to be on earth to see the reality of this long promise festival of tabernacles truly played out. Of course, we long to see that. God is with us. And this is part of something that, that I've learned a, a, a new phrase. It's part of something that's called the Emmanuel Agenda. God with us. But of course, that agenda has gone all the way through every single holiday. This is about God dwelling with us. Is helping me out today. It's about God's dwelling in us. Tabernacles is a reminder that we are not complete without Him. So then we come back to the feast of Trumpets. And there's a few of you that admitted with me that the feast of Trumpets is a little harder to, to kind of get your mind around in its fullest extent. It's a different type of holy day. It's a different moed, a different sacred assembly. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23-25, we just have a few verses. And it's interesting, all the other holy days generally have quite a lot of information about them. But trumpets, we've just got a few verses in Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And then there's a little bit more over in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 29 starting in verse 1, and it says, On the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. Uh, for it is a day of blowing the trumpet. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord. One young bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year, without blemish. The grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the lamb, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make an atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering, with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offering according to their ordinance. as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire. None of those sacrificial elements really tell us what this day is about. It's just simply described as a remembering of blowing a trumpet. So obviously that is our key. It's a memorial when trumpets have been blown in the past. And it would certainly be reasonable to assume that for Israel... 
well, they would be reminded of some very specific things, especially Israel traveling through the wilderness, because the trumpets were used to organize the camp, to signal when certain parts of the camp would move, when they would be getting ready to go to a new location. All right, this side, and this side, and this side, and so on, would get the signal using the trumpet. And then, of course, the trumpet blast that they made. That would have been not easily done. So we can look at these elements and, and look and see all the time the trumpet used in Israel's life, in times of war, on holy day of judgment, when they traveled as I mentioned before. But it's not all there is to comfort. It's just a, a memorial of remembering battles, remembering holy days, remembering when to gather. Of course, there's something deeper to it. There are significant moments when the comfort is used. Some of them were really quite profound. And they would have had a very profound effect on the people that heard them and those that interacted with them. As I mentioned, one of them, probably the first one in the Senate, took place at Sinai. After about close to 50 days, right, traveling from Egypt through the wilderness, they arrived on the plain. Sinai in front of the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 10, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds to the people all around, saying, Indeed, to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its face. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, and shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near, uh, they shall come near to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. They washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near to your wives. And then it came to pass, on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, we've all heard, heard very loud noises before, I'm sure. Anybody been to a, uh, a rock concert, a music festival? They just seem to find the maximum place on the dial and leave it there, right, for all the amplification. If you've ever been in that presence of those speakers, and, and where do you hear it? You hear it in your chest. You hear it in your body. It's vibrating through you. And I imagine this is what it was like. A blast that everyone could hear. 
calling them to come to the base of the mountain, to come and meet God right there at that mountain. The whole camp came there. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke as the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, and it became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. What kind of guy was Moses? So here we have this mountain is on fire. I mean, a furnace. It's not a nice little fireplace. It's a furnace. And they are used to melt metal. It's hot. And the thing is loud. And it's shaking the ground. And Moses goes up into it. Did anybody else go with Moses? People say, they, they, you go talk to them. We'll stay down here. I think that's what I would do. <laughs> it, this must have been an incredible sight. So not easily forgotten, right? So later, as the children of Israel are wandering around for 40 years, on the day of trumpets, those that were there, I imagine, at the Feast of Trumpets, they would remember that That was significant. There's some other significant things for us here as well going on because obviously we arrive here at the, the festival of first at Pentecost. The giving of the law and the giving of the, the covenant right here at Mount Sinai. And so we've got this 50th day number floating around. But did you guys notice another number that was floating? told to go and sanctify themselves, wash themselves, prepare their clothing, be ready for the third day. The third day. Why is that so Well, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, when Jesus and his disciples were in Galilee, he says, the Son of Man is about to be prepared into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they will exceedingly celebrate. The number goes into the 50th day. We assemble, looking forward manifestation of God. He came down in this great power on the mountain, and then he came down in human form and was sacrificed for us. Of course, 
these are, you know, his sacrifice didn't take place on Sunday. But they are tied together by Sunday. Because they are a memorial of blowing the trumpet. And the trumpets were blown on Pentecost at, at all the holy They were blown. And I believe, I think I have this right, on the day of trumpet, both types of trumpets were blown. It was the ram's trumpet and the silver trumpet together, making a big noise. But whenever the trumpets are blown in the history of God's interaction with mankind, we need to pay attention. We need to remember. We need to think about what God is doing. As I mentioned earlier, I've always thought of trumpets as just being a memorial of the battle, a remembering of the conflicts, remembering the different times that Israel had to fight against their enemies. But that is not actually the only meaning of the Hebrew word that we translate into blowing our trumpet. There's another meaning in this word. The Hebrew word is Kavua, and it can be translated as joy. Joy. A glowing trumpet of joy. A celebration. A trumpet of celebration. We get some of this meaning from Numbers chapter 10. It's a little longer passage here, but verses 1 through 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation, for directing the movement of the camps. When they, both, when they blow both of them, all of the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then only the leaders and the heads of the divisions of Israel shall gather to you. And when you sound in the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall begin their journey. And when you sound the advance a second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. And they shall sound the call for them to begin their journey. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. And so that's why we have that remembrance, right, of God coming to Israel's aid when they blew the trumpet. Probably wish it happened more than it actually did because they were often so much in rebellion. But then in verse 10, we get this also in the day of your gladness. In the day of your gladness, when you're in joy, when you're celebrating, you blow the trumpet and you have joy in your appointed feasts. And at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. 
I shall be a memorial to you before your God. I am the Lord. The day of trumpets is not just about war. It's not just about danger and, and re- remembering when God protected Israel or protects us from our enemies. Also, the day to celebrate the half year, to be glad. It's the, it's the celebrated day of rejoicing. A day that remembers and memorializes all of the people. Remember them and celebrate them. And it's a festival in some ways that is designed to gather all the meanings, as I did at the beginning of this message, to remind us of all the rich meanings of God's holy day. Bind it into one and celebrate it on that day to have joy on that day. For the Christian, far more than for Israel, it is much richer and has much more significance than it ever could then. They couldn't see the picture, they couldn't see what the holy days represented. Because Christ did not come yet. But we see that. The richness of that. We see it. And see him as our Passover lamb. As the unleavened bread from heaven. As the mediator of the new covenant. As that covenant seal of Pentecost. You can see him as the atonement sacrifice. You can see. The words of righteousness. He's the only one that can make that. Trumpets remind us of all the And we can see him as a real Jubilee. Remember, every 50 years, on the Day of Atonement, they blew the trumpet, and everyone walked. Very literal. How can a trumpet be used to symbolize war and alarm and danger and also joy and gladness and celebration? How can it be both? How can it represent conflict and peace? How can it represent God has given us a day to help us understand. See, the 
address both Let me show you what I mean. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus says something that is so hard for us to sometimes understand or fully appreciate. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. You are going to have trouble. The word in the Greek for tribulation means distress and anguish. You will, in this world, have distress and anguish. That's what Jesus is saying. And yet he's also saying that if we are in him, is something that we have to learn to do. And we can only learn to do it through the, the Spirit of God. We can only learn that through the Spirit of God. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various again, seems incompatible, doesn't it? We may be in a trial right now, in our life, in desperate pain, in struggle, in, in fear and worry. And if we're not in it now, we've been in it before, and there seems to be a distinct lack of joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given. When you're in that struggle, when you're in that tribulation, have you ever asked God, Let this trial, let these trials, let the things that we are enduring do its work. There's a process here. It's developing some things. And if we're not quite understanding what we're supposed to be developing, he says, let us ask God. He gives to all liberally and without reproach. We can't ask him. 
What are you doing here? Why am I enduring this? What lesson do I need to learn from this? Where is the joy in this situation? I think that's what Paul also says in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to me, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be. says, I know how to be a base. He knows how to deal with it. He knows how to handle this. I know how to abound. It doesn't get out of control. It doesn't go to its side. It doesn't lead to sin. I know how to abase. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be full. How could we be full and stipend here and there from one or two churches. But for the most part, he worked. And when he was busy preaching, what was he not doing? He was not earning. And so, I'm sure, many times, he went hungry. And yet, he was also full. Both to abound and to suffer I can do all things. listen to Paul. <laughs> Not just because he wrote most of the New Testament, but because this is the voice of the Spirit. This is what he has endured. He's lived this life. He has been that great example after Jesus Christ. How can we be these things? be like Paul unless we have the joy of Christ Jesus. And he learned this. But we need to give ourselves a place. Because it's not something that we automatically have. Pop up out of the waters of baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit that outflows all the fruits of the Spirit. All at once. That's not how it works. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12, says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, with the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Lord. What was the joy that was set before him? 
our salvation, our resurrection, our celebrating the Holy Day, our deepening our relationship through the that was all before him. So what did it make the cross? It made it a good. That's what he's saying. He despised the negative. He despised the shame. He cast that off. This isn't shame. This is joy. This is this is why I came. This was my whole mission. This is the whole purpose. And he was filled with joy. The object of shame, the object of his torture, the object of his death, became the object of joy. Turned it all into joy. Did he have fear? Yes. But he showed us that it can be in pain and in joy at the same time. He showed us that. We can have both together. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. The writer says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest he become weary and discouraged. We need to consider that Christ Jesus, our Savior, went through all of that and counted it joy. All of that tribulation, all of that struggle, and he was able to see the joy, to have the joy. If we don't find the joy in our struggle, Paul saying here is that we will be discouraged. It's really one of the ways. If we go through life in this Christian walk, and we've maybe deceived ourselves a little bit, but well, if we do things just right and we follow the Lord just perfectly, then blessings will flow. That's not the covenant we signed up for. The new covenant Yes, we get all the good things eventually, but not in this life. Not as part of the new You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, he says, striving against sin. You have not, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by for whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son in his Are we in trouble? Are we in anguish? Are we in tribulation? We should count it Because God is working with us. He is treating us as sons and daughters. I didn't like being spanked. When I was younger, anybody else like being spanked? No. God can stop any tribulation coming on us. 
He can remove it. Maybe he didn't bring it, but he's going to allow it. And he's doing it for a reason. And I think one of those reasons is so that we can develop pure and remove successful. Don't despise it. Don't fight it. Don't even avoid it. Endure it. For the joy that is set before that. Says if you endure chastening, God deals with you as we are His children. How much joy is it now? Do you feel that joy now, welling up inside you that you are a son or daughter of God? That no matter what you've done, no matter how you fail, He is with us, developing. Chastening us. That's joy. But what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits? For they indeed for a few days chasing does as seem best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And I remember one time being chastened by my dad, and he was absolutely 100% dead wrong. He was human, and he made a mistake, and I didn't deserve the punishment, and he was angry at me. Just no telling. Right? So we've all experienced that. That is not the case with He's not vindictive. He's not mean. It really doesn't hurt it when we act that. When we sin. When we're broken. In the sense of, you know, it's not like when you're making too much noise and your dad just comes back to you. Right? It hurts him because. Doesn't make mistakes. So we have to accept that when we're in those tribulations. That is hard. But I think that is part of learning to find the joy. Because we can feel His hands working on us. Like I said earlier, I don't think it's anything that comes over now. Paul said he learned those things. Right? And in Galatians 5, 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no way. And we have this analogy of the fruit. And so we can take this to what we know about how fruit works. Has anybody ever planted a fruit tree? We have two pear trees. We planted one for each of our four. And they give a lot of pears. So much so that there's enough for all the beetles to get drunk. 
that we, we can't get to some of the fairs because of where they're located. There's enough for us to call friends over and, and have fairs. There's enough for us to force fairs on some of you. Please take these. There's enough for us to uh, freeze a bunch of fairs that we have not to get rid of. They did not grow in the first did start to grow, <laughs> the gardener, the husbandman, had to come along and whoop, pull off all those, all those little flowers that were trying to grow pear. Why? Because the tree can be a poor pear. The tree will actually start trying to grow pears before it has enough strength in its limbs to bear the pear. And so this is the imagery that I see when we say the fruit of the Spirit is these things. We do not pop up out of the water for baptism, receive the laying on of hands, and have all of this ready to go. It would be great, but we don't. It is only through tribulation. It is only through suffering. Joy. skills. You have to learn tools. You have to learn to find joy in the middle of that. But, I have to admit, I have trouble doing that. I struggle with that. I am what C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia called a marshal. Anybody know what a marshal is? It's a strange very tall, that lives in the land of Narnia. And it confines the dark cloud in any sunny day. It confines the worst in every situation. Even if everything's right. Anybody have trouble knocking off the worries when everything's right? Everything's right. I think even Marshall can learn the skill of finding joy. And I think, I wonder to a certain extent, is God going to keep bringing these challenges to us until we figure it out? Until we listen, until we ask Him, how do I find joy in this struggle? How do I find it in this trial? should remember all the times of conflict and, and, and God's intervention in this place. But we need to also remember it is a day to celebrate and have joy over the joy that Christ Jesus had before Him, that He endured the cross for us. To have the joy of each of the holy days and the depth of meaning that we have in those days. Psalm 98, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing for joy. And 
This is a prophetic psalm in many ways. It's certainly looking towards Israel. But what if we take of it for ourselves? And we say, I am going to sing to God a new song. I'm going to commit myself to singing the song of joy in tribulation. I'm going to ask Him, how do I arrive at that joy? For He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained Him the victory. Jesus has gained us the victory. What else is there to be worried about? We are secure in Him. So easily we get overwhelmed with the cares of this world. The Lord has made known His salvation, His righteousness, He has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the heart, with the harp and the sound of the song, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar, and all the fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, and let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, He shall judge the world and the people. The nations will be filled with joy. They'll sing with joy. Those mountains and hills, they are nations, and smaller nations. And they will be filled with joy, and they will clap their hands, and they will sing. We will be there. And this all comes in the midst of what? The worst suffering of mankind has ever We will bring joy. Celebrate trumpets. Let's celebrate trumpets. Let's look for that joy. Let's set aside the world. Let's set aside the tribulation. Celebrate 